Shalom, everyone. This is Zion Hebraic Congregation. I'm Luke Tanner. This Shabbat message is entitled Maintaining Our Focus in the Midst of Division by Warren Tanner. You can check us out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy. Shalom. Mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does not only away. The soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and Shalom. Great to be here today, in spite of the lovely weather. Right, you can turn to Mark chapter 3. And I want to start today by reading my blog that I wrote. I know everybody here already read it, so pardon me for the redundancy. But it, it's, it plays into just where I am in Mark and what I want to talk about today. So Mark chapter 3, so my blog was titled, And Yet Another Variation on a Theme, Is It Lawful? And that's because this is the third time I've talked on the different configurations of the law. And so and the, there's two other blogs on the law, Torah questions that are asked, and this is another one. So, uh, in Mark <coughs> chapter 3, verse 4, it says, And he, Yeshua, said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil? So, that's our heads up on the law. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil? To save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. So this takes place, and we're going to read it in a little bit, but in, he enters into a synagogue, and there's this setting, and, and so Yeshua asks this question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. Have you ever noticed that once you acquire something, you then start to see it all over the place? You never really noticed it before until it was that which interested you. That happened when we got our Volkswagen Jetta. We never had a Volkswagen before, and so I never really took notice of them when I was driving. But once we had ours, I saw them everywhere. Funny how that works. I now have a similar response in my reading of the Bible. Things which I hadn't focused upon as a quote-unquote Christian under grace are now becoming larger on the landscape of my awareness and understanding. They seem to pop up everywhere now. It's great, actually. So why didn't I see Volkswagens on the road? Why didn't I notice that which I now notice in the Bible? I think the two have something in common, an interest that now goes beyond the surface. Since a Volkswagen is mine, I take a greater interest in the world of Volkswagens. Now that I'm involved in a Hebraic Messianic mindset, 
The Bible as one unified whole has captivated my awareness and perspective. The turnaround in my mind and heart has been nothing short of miraculous. I've said before this processional shift is just about as supernatural as my salvation, meaning meaning both were acts of God's grace apart from any previous involvement on my part. Yes, God had been working in my heart long before the moment of salvation. However, I can say that at the time my salvation happened, I wasn't looking for God. The same is true with this new messianic mindset I now have. Yes, God had been working in my heart long before I was aware anything like this existed. And since I didn't know there were others thinking about any of this, I wasn't looking. But I did have thoughts and questions for years about the seeming discontinuity between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Were there really two versions of God in the Bible? The Old Testament God of wrath and law versus the New Testament God of love and grace? It wasn't ever easy for me to slice up the Bible like a pie or cake. If God is anything, he is a unified, consistent, uncomplicated God. The reality that we tend to think otherwise is proof, once again, that we try to create God in our own image, a discombobulated, inconsistent, complicated mess. I, for one, refuse any longer to believe God is anything less than he is. He is, always has been, and always will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, back to the verse. Yeshua is, in essence, asking them what their standard of faith and practice is. He wants them to think through the implications and ramifications of what they say they believe or don't believe. And Yeshua did what only he could do so well. He puts them into a dilemma, a tight spot, an uncomfortable position. He is forcing them to confront themselves. What can they say that won't trap them and show their hypocrisy? It's so awesome to see Yeshua at work. He's so straightforward when he needs to be. He's even more so with the religious elite, those who should know better. He cuts them no slack whatsoever. Yeshua wants to know what standard they're using. He's asking them if what they believe is in accordance with the law. And that being the question, what law could Yeshua be referring to? To help answer the question, we need only to ask what standard governed his life and actions. Man's laws? I trow not. His own laws slash Torah? I trow yes. He was a Torah manifested in the flesh. My desire here isn't to sort out the implications of what Yeshua was asking them. What I want us to see is that they are caught on the proverbial horns of a dilemma. Some of those gathered in the synagogue were endeavoring to prove that Yeshua's theology was in error. The Torah, they purport, forbids these gracious acts on the Sabbath, and yet they are the same ones that will ultimately transgress the Torah by their evil thoughts and actions against him, so much so that they will get him crucified. Accepting the Torah as relevant 
and consistent with God and His grace, opens up simple teachings of Yeshua like this one in Mark chapter 3. You can't really proceed at all until you determine this whole issue of the law. For some reason, Christians seem to have arrived at a mindset which says, we know and understand it all now. There's no need to re-examine our theology. But we don't know it all, and we do need to challenge our theology every now and then. God's word is infallible, not us. Our understanding and comprehension of law slash Torah is vital. Unless we're willing to acknowledge the inconsistencies in our theologies, we will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We will be double-minded, unstable in all our ways, unfit for end times victorious living. Satan knows all this. It's his purpose and goal to distort and misrepresent what God has said in his word. Quote, yea, hath God said. By the looks of things, Satan has done a pretty bang-up job dividing and confusing people between what God has said and what we want him to say. God is not the author of confusion. That's the beauty of God. He's not hard to find or understand unless we make him that way. We work so hard to make the Bible fit our dispensational and or theological mindsets that we surpass all normal rationality. Why? Could it be afraid? Sorry. Could it be we're afraid to reevaluate our theologies because of what we might actually discover? Here's what I think. Some of God's people, deep down inside, sense that their nicely assembled theological toolbox is missing a few wrenches. So, unless we're willing to consider that God might, to that God might not totally subscribe to our embedded theologies, we will continue to be trapped in the revolving door of blindly following our theologians. For those that might take, oh, sorry, for those that might be up for the challenge, consider the two things mentioned in Mark 3-4. First, the law. Done away with? Are you sure? How much? Which parts? Who decides? Has anyone decided? Is the law good or is it good that the law has been done away with? Two, the Sabbath. Changed to Sunday? Who changed it? Where does it say definitively that it was changed? What has more scriptural support? Saturday worship or Sunday worship? Allow me to ask what Yeshua asked of others. Are your beliefs and practices lawful? Now, figure out what law he's talking about. So, it feels weird when I go back and read this stuff, but that sounded pretty good. <laughs> well, I don't always. But since I've been reading in the Gospels, you know, starting with John the Baptist, it is not lawful that blog and then I forget what it is the second lawful was and then Yeshua said is it lawful and it just keeps reiterating the importance of the fact that the Torah is central to everything and our understanding of what the Torah is and isn't is vital to everything 
and those of us in the Messianic movement, you know, we didn't realize that. We didn't see the Volkswagens on the road until we got one, right? Now, for me, reading the scriptures, it's like stuff I hadn't seen for so long. It's just like ping, 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 popping up everywhere, and it's been exciting. And for all of us, pretty much, it's all hinged upon our understanding and awareness of the fact that the Torah has not been done away with. When Yeshua asks these guys, is it lawful? He's not asking the, the local policemen right there in the, in the gathering, what does the law say? Can I do this according to the law? What law is he referring to? And to think that he would come here and disassemble himself piece by piece as the word, not really make it clear to his disciples, and it's not until Paul comes along that everybody finally gets the memo. You know, I mean, poor Peter. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And Yeshua's off the scene. And the poor guy's still holding to the dietary restrictions. So anyway, I've been really excited about this, this thing of just seeing stuff that's been popping up in the scriptures that I've never really taken the time to ponder upon. So what I want us to try to do is um, go through chapter three, and, and I want to just read it and try to make a few comments. So by way of titling this, Maintaining our focus in the midst of division. Maintaining our focus in the midst of division. Now, we find ourselves, but it goes beyond what I'm going to make application for us, but we find ourselves in the midst of a divisive scenario. We are divisive by the very nature of who we are. We, we, because of who and what we believe, throw us into, the, into a mix of Christians. There's going to be a separating, a parting of the... Of, there's going to be a chasm that goes between the Torah observers and the Torah we don't because it's been done away with people. And I... And, 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 and in reading this chapter, what's at the heart of it is division. Yeshua was a divisive, divisive figure, not because he wanted to be, but because of what he knew he was and what he knew he wasn't. And he maintained his focus moving through the midst of that divisiveness that was always around him because he knew who he was and what he believed and never backed down. Though it caused people to just, here comes this guy, and the, the crowds part because, oh, you don't want to get too close to this guy. And we feel like that. I mean, don't we at times we feel like, nah, wherever we go because I'm wearing these crazy strings, be it in the midst of unsaved people or Christians, automatically a divisious, divisiveness develops. How do we maintain focus with our unsafe family members that can't figure out are you so are you jewish now 
No, we're not really Jewish, but we are Hebraic. Oh, oh, okay. Well, oh, that's nice. <laughs> or your your Christian save friends. So, are you Jewish? No, we're we're Hebraic. Oh, so. Do you believe the law is still in effect? Do you still believe in Yeshua? And, and it becomes so easy to focus on, I am that guy that everybody's going to be wondering about, rather than, and, 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 and I know at various stages we go through this, but I know whom I believe, I know what I believe, and I'm just going to stand strong in that in the midst of a divisiveness. Now, how do we do that? Well, that's what this chapter is about, I think, in many ways. I've decided, or not decided, I finally realized that the thing I hate most about life is division, discord, disunity. Up until reading this chapter, I don't think I realized how much that sort of thing affects me. I, I just can't, I can't handle it. And I think it's because, perhaps, of the family situation in which I grew up in. What? Yelling, hatred expressed towards other family members, this constant separation and division and discord and disunity. I, I can't take it anymore and, and I don't like it anymore. But I finally realized that is at the heart of a lot of what I struggle with because I want, I'm Rodney King, remember when the riots happened years and years ago and he came, they were throwing the bricks at him and stuff and he got on, can't we just all get along? I'm that guy. I don't understand why we don't and can't, although I do understand why we don't and can't, all get along. The older I get, the more I am longing for the reign of Yeshua. Why? Somehow we're all going to get along. But until then, how do we maintain focus in the midst of division? Um... Hold your finger here. Go back to Proverbs 6. And I, and I just want to give us a glimpse into God's perspective on disunity, discord. Proverbs 6, uh, starting at verse 12. Uh, okay, we're just picking it up. A naughty person... A wicked man walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, speaketh with his fingers. He teaches with uh, his feet, teaches with his fingers. Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. Then builds on that discord thing. These six things doth Yehovah hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. But don't stop there. And heart that devises 
wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. I mean, God doesn't like discord, disunity, division among anybody, but especially among his people, and especially in the, and I think of this in, in not for any particular reason, but in, in our family units as believers, in our individual home life. You know, Yeshua had the John 17 prayer, John chapter 17 prayer where he says, you know, make them one as we are one. I mean, that's at the heart cry of Yeshua, unity amongst his people. Father, that they may be one even as we're one. Now, it's not going to happen in the grand scheme of the world around us. It's not even going to happen necessarily, though it should, in the grand scheme of our local churches, our messianic assemblies. And it will never reach out into any of that unless there is harmony and unity amongst our individual believing family units. Because if there's discord and disunity in a, our family unit, mom and me, well, Judy and me, it's going to affect those that we come in contact with. And that it's like a, it's the rock in the pond that spreads the ripple effect. And if we can't, even in our Christian communities, have unity, we're in sad shape if we think we can affect the world. I can remember, well, I'm not even going to get the message, I'm not even going to worry about it. I can remember when I got saved, I mentioned this several times, you know, I thought, man. So, so part of the reason I ended up in the, quote, hippie movement and doing drugs is because of the home life. Here was a group of people that seemed to be united under a couple themes, love and drugs. Good. Two things is involved with that community and at least my experience was it was a tight-knit community i've said this before you know we would start every night after supper hit the highway route to my friend robert's bong three or four of us in my car driving down route two to the end all the way back bonging smoking dope we would pick up people hitchhiking on the highway. Hey, you want some of this? Yeah. And, and one night we, we let some people off and said, man, we've never met anybody like you guys so free just sharing your stuff with us. This is cool. Thank you so much. You know, we, we were united. So then I get saved. And I'm thinking, I'm going from my family, which was discordant, to the hippie movement, which was, wow, we kind of had everybody's back here. To me, I am now going into Christianity, and I can remember sitting there in the pews and thinking, man, this is great. I am, and they tell us, I'm part of the family of God. This is going to be awesome, only to find out that the assistant pastor who preached while the pastor was gone, who preached on hell the first time we were there, well, come to find out he and the pastor were already in some disagreement, and he's soon going to leave the assistant even, I think, before I start attending it regularly, and then find out there's all kinds of division in the, in the church, and this one's not happy with this one, and this one's not happy with this one, and these people are hating the pastor and wanting him to go away. And I, I think, okay, what did I get into? And then 
Thankfully, I go off to, to Christian college. And it's like, okay, you know, didn't quite work there in that local assembly. That's an anomaly. It's probably just that one. I got a, in with a bad bunch, go off to Bible school, and it's all over again. And so I always want to somehow put the Band-Aid on everything. And I'm realizing through the life of Yeshua, it's not going to happen. So let's read chapter 3. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth! And he saith unto them, Is it lawful, is it in accordance with the Torah, to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with love and compassion. No. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now, one thing I have never noticed about this section of Scripture, at least here in Mark, I didn't check it out with the other Gospels. The one thing I never noticed is there's no talking here. Nobody says anything except Yeshua. And yet he handles it without anybody tipping their hands, really. The, those that are gathered in the synagogue, they're there, they watch him, whether he's going to heal on the Sabbath day, they want to accuse him, but they don't say a word. The man that's going to get healed, he never says a word, at least in the narrative of Mark. The only one speaking is Yeshua, and yet he has the audacity to get angry at these people for their hidden motives and intentions. They never vocalized anything. And yet somehow, he knew what they were thinking. And be, without even allowing them a chance to spill forth their hatred towards him, he blows them apart. Smacks them upside the head. And not only does he not lose his focus, he keeps everything focused on the issue, the Torah. Is it in accordance with the Torah? And I'm not letting anybody speak, sidetrack anything right now. You guys, I know what you're thinking. You want to accuse me. Not going to get an opportunity before you have a chance to speak, at least according to Mark. I'm going to let you guys have it. And, and hey, you with, with the hand thing, come here. And, uh, you know, what would the guy have felt like standing there? It's like, Ooh. you know, this is like what I think my kids always feel like about me when I get going, Dad, not again. You know, this guy's thinking, what did I get myself in? I'm just in the synagogue here, minding my own business. In pops this guy. Now I find myself in the midst of this thing. 
and I'm an object lesson, an example. You know, I, I, I just would, I, see, this is where my mind goes. This is why the scriptures is, for me, so alive, because this is something that's going on. You know, you're that guy. So anyway, now, I thought Ryrie, reason I had this Bible today, is it's had a good couple notes on, on verse 2 on the Sabbath. It says, rabbinic tradition, not Old Testament law, forbade practicing medicine on the Sabbath unless the person were on the verge of death. Christ's critics were simply determined somehow to stop his activities. So, you know, everybody knows right then and there who's in this. Yeshua, these people, this guy, there's nothing wrong. The Torah says there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's the oral Torah that's a problem. And it's interesting, you know, that somebody like um, Ryrie knows that, you know. Rabbinic tradition, the oral Torah, is the problem is the root. So he's really saying, okay, guys, you're the teachers. You're the guys that know it all. Is it your Torah or my Torah? Which Torah are we going to subscribe to? Gosh, is anybody feeling the pathos in this situation? It's awesome. Now, Rory had another note about verse 4. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And that's, I'm sure, what ripped them up. I'm sure, I'm nothing worse than somebody not responding. You'd rather have them respond so you can yell at them. They just shut up and say nothing. I don't know about you. That just makes me even madder. I don't know if it's what happened with you. But anyway, they hold their peace. So Ryrie says, Christ's argument is, and, and I thought this was good. This is what Yeshua, this is the horns of the dilemma I was talking about. To be able to do good and refuse to do it is evil. Okay, don't miss this. To be able to do good and refuse to do it, it is evil. Not to heal this man would have been evil. That's why they can't answer anything. That's because the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of man? You can't answer that. There's no answer that you can give that's not going to just nail you to the wall. This is what I love about Yeshua. This is what we need to learn to be able to do when dealing with these tight spots people put us into, to be able to maintain focus, to not get drawn off sidetracks, to not question whether we're right or not, or, you know, just to maintain focus and stay on issue. The Torah is the Word of God. Nothing has changed. And he's able to bring this all to the forefront by the simple question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? It's marvelous. It's, it's amazing. It's just, gosh. It's poetry in motion. I, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's a play that's per, carried out to perfection. It's that, that, that pass on the soccer team to the guy in the center that is able to just Kick it in, and, and it's, it's, it's beautiful to see. And so, 
That's part of the division, that section there. Now, that's the religious division. We get into demonic division and discord. Verse 7, but Yeshua withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues and unclean spirits, they do the talking. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Interesting, these guys speak out. They have no hesitancy at, at, at uh, uh, vocalizing who he is, whereas the oral Torah people struggle with being that outspoken about who Yeshua is. So that, that, that's the dark demonic side. And then we get into the, the, the calling of the twelve, and we'll just read it. And he goeth up uh, into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. So to me, it's like, all right, I'm already dealing with Yeshua. I'm already dealing with the religious elite that are just idiots. I, I'm surrounded by demonic people that are just total disaster. So I'm going to pick somebody that will really get it. Well, we find out as time goes by, these guys he picks don't really get it. And some of them not really until the end. And after he's dead and gone. That's a whole thing, fascinating thing for me to look into, and I'm just it's going to sound heretical. But are all these guys at this point in time saved? Is it not until they progress a little bit longer that they really show evidence of salvation? Can it be so long until after the resurrection that somehow that spiritual light begins to click? I, I don't know, but it's interesting when we get into these guys. So, and that's my thought, don't consider me heretical, that's just where my mind goes. And so verse 14, he ordains 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boaginus, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which would also betray him. And they went into a house. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, See, this is part of the, this, this, this discord, divisiveness, not understanding. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, what is wrong with him? What is wrong with him? That's what he's saying. He is beside himself. So the religious world is discombobulated by him. The, the, um, the demonic world is just in awe of him. Then we have these guys he picks that are going to be somewhat, you know, it's so bad that you should, when people start leaving, he turns to his disciples and say, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You, you're the only one that has the words of life. But somebody had walked away, could not walk with him anymore. And then Yeshua, what would he have been feeling? It's like, you guys leaving too? 
But he's, he has these friends that say, wow, he's lost his mind. <laughs> That's what they're saying. So verse 22, and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, that's, yeah, he has. He, he, he has Beelzebub. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? It's another one of those questions. How can Satan cast out Satan? And on top of that, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And on top of that, if a house, see, this is getting to where he's breaking it down. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first, now he's saying what he's doing in relation to Satan, but no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. But they said, he's got an unclean spirit. 31. So there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him. And they said unto him, Hey, by the way, Yeshua, your mother and your brothers, they're outside looking for you. And he answers them and says, Oh, yeah, come on, go get them, bring them in. Oh, I'm so happy to see them. They're my family. We're unified. But they're not at this point. And so he says, uh, and he, 33, and he answered them saying, now how, how would you feel as a mother? How would you feel as a brother if you heard this? And he, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister, and my mother. So this is a chapter to me that's just so full of drama. All these avenues pulling at and pushing at Yeshua, and not once does he lose his mind. Not once does he get sidetracked. Not once does he lose his focus. As a matter of fact, he knows himself and what he believes and those amongst he's moving in, he knows what questions to ask. He knows how to turn the tables by causing people to think. Hey, you religious guys, I want you to stop and think. Whose law are you following here? It's, it's marvelous. It's just marvelous. I can't do it justice, so let me end. Um, I don't know how long I've gone. So, in conclusion, Yeshua kept moving forward and carrying out his mission by maintaining his focus. He knew who he was, what he believed, what people needed, and never veered off. 
So I think for us to be effective just as, as believers out in the midst of that world, we need to be just like Yeshua is. And, and, you know, we're out in the world and you encounter it like I encounter it. There's people that they see me coming. They know I'm the guy with the strings. I'm, I'm that Jew guy. And, and some keep their distance because of the lifestyle they're living. You know, it's fine. Great. Pray for them. Be kind to them. Talk to them, even if they don't want to talk to you. Share your faith with them, even though they don't want to hear it. And all the while, not being ruffled. Not feeling intimidated. Not feeling like I have to be on the defensive because they don't like me and think I'm crazy. Yeshua wasn't liked, and people thought he was crazy. The religious world didn't want him. The satanic world didn't want him. Nobody really wanted him. He gets to the cross and dies alone. Why? It's interesting. But yet, he made it all the way to the cross, didn't he? He did die. He had to tell Satan, uh, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God. You savor the things of men. You're not derailing me, Peter. Master, we're in the boat. The waves are coming. We're going to die. Guys, no. I'm on board. And all this has got me to realize once again, Yeshua is with us. We're not walking alone. He is in us, with us, moment by moment. He's our power not us. The Holy Spirit is that which will bring to our minds that which we need in that moment of time. It is the Word of God that has the power that we share, not our powerful word or arguments. And so Yeshua, the Word made flesh, <laughs> just let himself be himself, because that's where the power lay. I, you know, I got thinking, because I was going to go into chapter 4, but he, Master, we're, we're going to perish here. He's asleep. He gets up. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. This is going to sound crazy. I'm going to end. But he rebukes the wind and the waves, and the winds and the waves obey him. And the guys in the ship saying, what manner? Who is this guy we've been hanging around with? He just talks, and he's non-living elements. It's one thing to, to heal people, in, in my thinking. Not that any of it's superfluous. But it's one thing to, to heal a leper, to heal somebody of the palsy. Because that's a tangible person. Touch them and raise them from the dead. Is there a communication going? I mean, my mind goes crazy with this. But how can he speak to non-living elements and they listen? The wind stops. How does that happen? I love this stuff. Torn, this is stuff you need to get your mind thinking on. How can he speak to something you can't see, the wind, see the effects, the waves, the water? They're not living. They don't have ears. They don't have eyes. They don't have a soul. They don't have a spirit. They don't have flesh and blood. But yet he speaks and they listen. Wow. That's who lives in us. That's the one who calms the storms that we can't see. 
That's why Paul says we wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against this unseen world. I know it's unseen. How, how can we do it? How can we win the battle? Yeshua did it right there in that boat. He wants us to see. I got that covered too, guys. What you can't see, I have that covered too. I have your back. Ugh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I just thank you for Yeshua. It sounds so stupid but to say now, but I just oh, I so appreciate him in ways that I never did before. And so I thank you for, I think, doing what you've always said in your word. You do. For those that have eyes to see and ears to hear, they can listen. But those whose eyes and hearts are hardened, they're the ones that are going to struggle. And I think somehow because you started to break through, and not just us here, but in thousands and thousands of people around the world, have begun to open up the understanding of the, the validity and the applicability and the viability of the whole word. I, I think it enables us, one, to see you in ways we never have, but to realize internally and maybe externally a powerful source that we've been denying ourselves. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's where the power is. The genealogy is power. It's all power. So anyway, thank you, Father, uh, for just blessing me. I mean, I've just been so blessed in this reading. Thank you, Yeshua, for who and what you are. Take the blinders off. Take the hardness off our hearts. Mold us, make us like the hymn says. Just do what you have to do to conform us to your image. For your glory, in your name, amen. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah.